Toby Haydock here to remind you that we have fire now. Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, the what and the when of Doctor Who, a television programme about inhospitable environments and escaping from them by the skin of your teeth. I'm going to go through the series in order, reminding you about what you did know and hopefully telling you about some stuff that you didn't, whatever your level of knowledge. And this time, we are concluding the show's first full adventure. One story down and, well, who knows how many there are left to tell. But this one is at the beginning, the launch pad. The original, you might say. So join me, Toby Haydock, as I give you the who, what, when of Doctor Who, the Firemaker. Or, transportation is near, close enough but not too far, baby, you know where you are. Burning down the house. First broadcast on the 14th of December, 1963, at a quarter past five. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman, with guest stars Jeremy Young as Cal and Derek Newark as Zar. It was written by Anthony Coburn, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Waris Hussain. The TARDIS crew are brought back to the tribe's dwelling and immediately get caught up in cave politics. Cal insists that Zar is responsible for the death of the old woman until the doctor tricks him into revealing that it was actually he who perpetrated the crime. With Ian's help, the doctor encourages the tribe to expel Cal from the cave and the science teacher explains to Zar that with the whole tribe on his side, he doesn't need to worry about Cal. Zar thanks him for this insight by chucking them all back into the cave and instructing them under threat of death to make fire for him. Ian manages to make fire, but Cal breaks into the cave and he and Zar end up in a fight to the death. But even having helped the tribe, the time travellers are still in danger and need to come up with a clever solution. The when. Anthony Coburn's initial four-page story breakdown of the whole adventure has many differences from the broadcast version, even though the essence of the story is largely the same. The Travellers and Tsar are all thrown into the cave together, and Tsar is much more reasonable than he is in the final episode. He is very much the goody, where Cal is the baddie. Cal threatens to kill the Travellers, but Tsar is more benign. Agreeing that the whole tribe should have fire and warning the travellers that he will not be able to stop the tribe from killing them if they don't make it. With Chesterton outside trying to rub sticks and dry grass together, the old woman, still alive in these drafts, comes into the cave with a tribesman and orders him to kill the travellers, but cries of jubilation outside interrupt her murderous intentions. Ian has made fire, and the tribe 
now have it again. And the secret of making it has been returned. They enjoy a meal with the travellers and bid them a friendly farewell. But Doctor Who, once again, cannot correctly control his ship, and instead of 1963, as the teachers had hoped, they land somewhere in front of a huge mountain, with a vast building in front of it, suspended in mid-air. The subsequent scene breakdown for the story expands upon and changes some elements of episode 4, at this stage called The Dawn of Knowledge. In it, Her pleads with the old mother, who still isn't dead, to free Tsar and the TARDIS crew. The idea of using the tribe as a whole in order to win your argument becomes through very strongly here. It's like a theme. Cal tries to whip them up into supporting the sacrifice of the travellers, but Her reasons with them. Chesterton refuses to make fire just for Cal. He will do it for the whole tribe, something which Tsar endorses. Even though Tsar isn't confident he can protect the travellers from the mob, even though he is well disposed towards them. Much is made, too, of the sun creeping over a certain piece of rock. When the sunlight reaches a particular juncture, the crew's time limit for making fire will have been reached, and they will be killed. Chesterton actually demonstrates to certain tribesmen how fire is made, and there's a sort of countdown as we keep cutting back to the rock. There are close-ups of Zara and her, and tension as Chesterton races to make fire before the sun lights a particular area. The old mother and a tribesman advance on the doctor, with the old woman preemptively saying that Chesterton has run out of time. So Barbara trips the tribesman up, but he recovers and raises his club to, and I quote, smash Barbara. But the cheer from outside comes just in time, and her rushes in and grabs the tribesman and pulls him outside to see that fire has been made. The tribesmen all beat the ground with their clubs in appreciation, and Ian gently shows them how it is done. In fact, he's so engrossed in what he is doing that he's completely forgotten about his companions, which mildly irks them. After they leave, they get a friendly send-off. The Doctor is glad to be out of there, while Susan confesses that she isn't sure the ship can actually return Ian and Barbara to the 20th century. They need to examine the workings of the machine. The Doctor, however, is confident in his ability and twirls the dials, but after a shaky journey, they land and are clearly not back in Totter's Lane. Susan shows the Doctor where he has gone wrong, via a point where two lines cross on the radar screen. He has miscalculated the weight, and they have overshot the target. The four exit the ship, and see the mountain and the floating Frank Lloyd Wright-style building mentioned in the story breakdown. However, there is more, as Coburn emphasises the silence as the mountain broods over the scene menacingly, once more, the travellers are plunged into mystery, and for all they know, danger. End of first serial. Eighth of August. Verity Lambert writes to Jack Kine of the BBC Visual Effects Department that there will be a shot required of a Frank Lloyd Wright type of building, which will be seen on the scanner at the end of episode four of the first adventure, in order to lead in to the next one. Now, although it is for the fourth episode of the first serial, the model is actually, really, the concern of the director slated in for story two, Rex Tucker, Lambert says. Tucker is currently on holiday, but will be back on September the 21st, and will be in touch. Reader, he won't. At this stage, the model is required for filming on October the 28th. 18th of September. 
as mentioned in previous instalments, today is when the incidental music for episode 4, well, the whole story of course, is recorded by the Norman Kay Ensemble, Seven Musicians, conducted by incidental music composer Norman Kay himself. Around 30 minutes of music in total is recorded. Six minutes for this final episode, for the 15 cues that it requires. Kay later feels that his TV music is not his finest or his most important work, and so disposes of it all, which is why we have no recordings of it, bar what is on the episodes themselves. Fire destroyed it in the end. 19th of September. The first footage for episode 4 is shot, just over a week before the pilot itself is recorded in studio. After footage of the ship from earlier episodes is done in the morning, the moment of the TARDIS dematerialisation from this episode is filmed in two stages. It is a sequence which involves the ship dematerialising by use of a locked-off shot and the removal of the police box and a mix between the two states, with spears in the ground in the second shot giving the impression of the cavemen hurling weapons which then go through the dematerialising timeship. The first shot of the ship bathed in a flickering light to simulate the flame torches held by the cave people is attempted twice with practical spears hurled at the box from off-screen. This is done twice, and then an alternative setup is attempted. The paperwork gives no clue as to what this is, but the absence of flying spears in the programme suggests that it is this take, without spears, that is ultimately used. The second shot, featuring the spears embedded in the ground where the ship once was, is filmed twice. On the second take, one of the spears is seen to fall down, and this is the take selected for broadcast. Presumably, getting the first shot involving moving spears to match with the second shot without the ship, but with the spears in the ground, was too hard, so instead the falling spear gives the closest approximation of what was intended. After this, the crew move on to the shots of receding London for the pilot. Although there will be further film requirements involving actors for this episode, none of them will be shot today. 23rd and the 25th of September. Editing takes place for these film sequences. The title sequence editing is part of this work, as well as the dematerialising TARDIS, which has also been subject to studio tests as well, in order that this key element of the show will have been practised in all conditions. As it is, the first time the ship is seen to dematerialise is the model shot, shot on film, for this episode, The Firemaker. 8th of October. The long-term future of the series Doctor Who is still in doubt. Verity Lambert sends a memo to her boss and Doctor Who creator Sidney Newman and head of serials Donald Wilson, telling them that if the series doesn't carry on after November the 8th, i.e. the recording of The Firemaker, that the production will have to write off a considerable amount of money committed and invested into planned episodes, namely £5,400 on scripts, £1,850 on artists, i.e. actors, and the remaining £2,500 for the spaceship, the cost of which was intended to be spread over the whole series. She also factors in the 2200 cost of the pilot, presumably suggesting that this too is a wasted investment if the series is cut short, 
and so she comes up with a figure of £11,950 in squandered money, the equivalent of about £213,000 in 2021. 9th of October. More pre-filming. This time, the climactic dash through the forest. This means that the set doesn't have to be erected in the TV studio for this one short sequence for episode 4, having been a key feature of episode 3, and so therefore worth mounting at Lime Grove. So the travellers we see running through the film forest haven't actually yet started rehearsals for the remount of episode 1. So the Doctor could still be quite grumpy, and look at Susan, she still has one foot in the 49th century. Uh, the regulars actually run on the spot and foliage is brushed past them to give an indication of movement in some sequences. The impressive shot of the travellers just making it to the TARDIS in time has given designer Barry Newbury the opportunity to remount and alter the landscape set, with some of the terrain built up on a rostrum and dressed with scattered sawdust. Actor Derek Newick is required for a close-up after the TARDIS has departed. So this is Newick's first work on the episode, and is a reunion for him with AFM Catherine Sykes. She had been DSM and back end of Alfred the Horse in Toad of Toad Hall at the Belgrade Theatre Coventry the year before, and Newick had also been in that production. He had played the Chief Stoat and the Policeman. Now then, whilst you can have too much information, we still don't have it all. We don't have the names of the eight unknown extras playing the tribe on film. As well as the TARDIS takeoff scene, they're also briefly shown running past the camera, ostensibly through the forest. There is anecdotal evidence that two of them are actors who go on to contribute to the series in decent credited roles later on, and indeed to have fine careers. Roger Hammond, Francis Bacon in The Chase, and Dr Runciman in Mordrin Undead, and latterly a rotund purveyor of character parts, often legal or clergyman, claimed to Doctor Who magazine to have been one of these Neanderthals. And who are we to doubt him? Norman Jones, Chris Ong in The Abominable Snowmen, Major Baker in Doctor Who and the Silurians, and Hieronymus in The Mask of Mandragora, also once wrote to a fan, Lee Allen, saying that he'd been a caveman in a William Hartnell episode, and this fits in with that, so maybe he's there. It's all we have in place of any confirming paperwork, and under that muck and those beards, it's difficult to tell. 10th and 11th of October. The fight scene between Cal and Zar is filmed at Ealing Studios, with work starting at 9.30am and concluding at 5.30pm. The fight is arranged and supervised by stuntman Derek Ware, who doubles for Jeremy Young as Cal, whilst Billy Cornelius stands in for Derek Newark as Zar. For these scenes, it becomes apparent that cavemen-friendly underpants will be required as the flinging about means some modesty protection will be in order, and nobody wants anachronistic knickers. This is, therefore, the first instance of visible underwear in Doctor Who. These milestones keep on being passed. Douglas Camfield oversees the filming. A film-experienced production assistant wouldn't be expected to oversee sequences, but they were expected to be able to, as part of their production duties, if called upon. That doesn't make him a co-director. Camfield collaborates closely with Ware, who advises on the editing of the sequence. Hussein, the director, wants to sow the results of the damage The Rock has done to Cal's head and also records the sound of a vegetable being smashed. Reports vary from it being a mallet whacked into a cabbage or crushed carrots, but none of the vegetables have survived to be interviewed. Either way, 
The moment is vetoed by Lambert, who is conscious of violence in the time slot, and this provokes a row between producer and director. Authority wins, however, and the head injury is ultimately dispensed in reassuring silence and off-camera. Some of the cast and crew go home with fleas, and it seems that this session was ground zero for Bitegate. The heat from the lights appears to have reanimated the critters slumbering within the cavemen furs and set them off, much to the discomfort of the cast. 4th to the 7th of November. Rehearsals take place for four days at the Drill Hall at 239 Uxbridge Road. No new guest cast are required. In fact, their number has diminished as Eileen Way as the old mother was killed last week and her body is cunningly hidden from view in the action this week so as not to go to the expense of rehiring her to play a corpse. 8th of November, 1963. The episode is recorded at Lime Grove Studio D. The opening shot of Ian takes place against black drapes and a minimal amount of dressing, so as not to resurrect the otherwise unnecessary forest set from last week. The credit for the visual effects department of the BBC is absent from the roller caption this week, even though they do actually work on the episode. The visual effects department don't want to work on Doctor Who because they can see how effects-heavy it will be, and only at the BBC could a department called the visual effects department not want to work on a show that requires a lot of visual effects as a speciality. This is because the visual effects designers are staff employees who will have to be allocated to programmes across the board and monopolising their time on one production will be an unhelpful distribution of resources. So department heads Jack Kine and Bernard Wilkie, the pioneers who had established themselves and their reputation with science fiction on the Quatermass serials, Boffins and engineers and artists who thrived on building things, creating creatures and blowing things up. Hand over control of something that seems tailor-made for them to someone else. Outside contractors overseen by the design department do most of the effects work for Doctor Who from now on and for much of the 60s. And yet the visual effects department of the BBC are credited on most of this story because they fit the lights and pump the TARDIS control panel and because the design department doesn't have a safety licence that allows it to work with fire. Yes, that's right, they aren't allowed to work with fire. And so the VFX department, which does have the requisite licence, oversees the fire making so integral to this episode in the form of Jim Ward who would later work on the show as an assistant as well as a full-blown visual effects designer on many stories between Doctor Who and the Silurians and Revenge of the Cybermen. The episode, budgeted at £2,500, actually comes in at £2,162, a welcome underspend, meaning that the serial itself, including the pilot, comes in under budget by about £1,118, which can go towards the costs of paying for scenery across the series. 14th of December. The episode is broadcast at 5.15pm on the BBC, uh, not BBC One, as mentioned in earlier editions of this podcast, as strictly speaking, BBC One doesn't exist yet. There is only one BBC TV channel, and so Doctor Who airs on something called BBC TV until April 1964, when the channel officially becomes BBC One. The Daily Mirror lists the episode in capitals in its lineup for the night, which means it counts as a star programme. 
There are, to be fair, quite a lot of star programmes that night in the Daily Mirror, but conspicuously not Emerald Soup, ITV's competition to Doctor Who, the sixth episode of which also starts at 5.15pm. 19th of December. Junior points of view run a 17-second excerpt of the fight, with a commentary coming from wrestling presenter Kent Walton. This makes it the first specially made and broadcast Doctor Who spoof. It proves to be popular enough with viewers to be repeated in Those Points of View, a compilation on the 30th of December. 17th of March, 1964. Verity Lambert puts in a request that all four episodes of this first adventure, Series A as it is called on the paperwork, be retained by the BBC until further notice. The request is noted by the videotape department the next day. 17th of August, 1967. The videotapes for all four episodes of the first Doctor Who story are scheduled to be wiped, but actually today, only the last three, including the Firemaker, are. But film recordings for foreign sale have already been made, and these are back in the BBC archives a decade later. 5th of November, 1981. A repeat run of the first story for the Five Faces of Doctor Who repeat season, used to cover the unusually long break between series and indeed Doctors, separating Legopolis Part 4 and Castrovalva Part 1, comes to an end with the 5.40pm BBC Two screening of The Firemaker. It is the channel's 15th most watched programme, with 3.9 million viewers. A drop across the week, which had started with An Unearthly Child netting 4.6 million viewers, The Cave of Skulls 4.3 and The Forest of Fear 4.4. 29th of October 1993. The Firemaker concludes the showing of the first four episodes as part of the programming at London's National Film Theatre. The episodes will subsequently be available regionally at affiliated art cinemas. 12th of January 2013. The Firemaker concludes the National Film Theatre's screening of the first four episodes of Doctor Who. Warris Hussain, William Russell, Carol Ann Ford, Special Sands guru Brian Hodgson and Jeremy Young take part in a panel discussion afterwards. 21st of November 2013. The Firemaker concludes the BBC4 screening of the first four episodes of Doctor Who between 10.55pm and 12.10am which have been aired to tie in with the terrestrial transmission of the drama documentary An Adventure in Space and Time, which in part covers the making of this first story. The What As covered earlier, the tribe children are supplied by the Corona Theatre School and Agency, who also supplied the school children in the pilot and in part one. The adult extras for the studio sessions are supplied by the Denton de Grey Agency. De Grey, born Terry Denton, had been an actor, but a car accident in the 1950s had left him scarred, so he became a stuntman before starting an extras agency in the early 60s, supplying Doctor Who a fair amount over the years. De Grey's science fiction credentials dated back to the early days of the genre, when, as an actor, he had played a technician in the final episode of Quatermass 2. Denton's father, perennial extra Roy Denton, is recruited to play one of the tribe in Doctor Who's first story. Instead of cutting to a leering close-up of Cal, as we did in the cliffhanger last week, 
we cut straight from the film shot of the cavemen emerging from hiding and blocking the TARDIS travellers to a shot of Horg in the studio, and he gets the first line of the episode, and so top guest billing, as the guest cast accredited in order of appearance or speaking. This denies main guest star Jeremy Young top billing once again, and so he never achieves it in any of the episodes. The Doctor's intellectual trouncing of Cal is a great showcase for our as-yet-to-become-the-hero. He shows the bloodless knife to Cal. Cal therefore says it is a bad knife, not because it can't kill things, but because it does not show the things that it has done. That's great primitive logic. Every time a knife is used to kill, it will be covered in blood, and so therefore a good knife is always a bloody knife, and it shows the things that it has done. The Doctor seizes this opportunity to respond that the one he has is a better knife than Cal's, wounding Cal's pride. This in turn leads Cal to get out his knife and prove that he, in fact, killed the old mother. It's not just the outwitting that is clever, but the fact that it happens whilst showing Cal's statements too, in his truth, be perfectly logical. This is a great hero flourish from the Doctor. The rest of the travellers haven't done or said anything of consequence by this stage of the episode, and he has outsmarted the bad guy. He then turns the tribe against Cal, having reasoned Tsar is the safer bet, and Soto Voce gets Ian to follow his example and turn the mob against Cal. He'd have been a dab hand on Twitter. The stones do not really harm him, but startle him, says the script of the barrage of debris thrown at our gloomy villain, just in case we have any disquiet about kangaroo courts and lynch mobs. Nevertheless, thanks in part due to Jeremy Young's sorrowful countenance and doleful demeanour, it is easy to feel quite sorry for Cal, the outsider, the loner, just trying to establish a place for himself and being driven out instead. Cal is not stronger than the whole tribe, says Ian, giving Tsar a lesson in democracy and people politics. Tsar then rounds on them, the serial defying the usual demarcation of goodies and baddies. The past is another country, and they certainly do things differently here. Like not saying thank you, but instead throwing you in a cave when you've just saved their life, kicked out their enemy, and taught them clever things. Derek Newark, a czar, looks like he's chewing on gristle and panting throughout, giving him a guttural, savage quality. Jeremy Young, as mentioned, is more mournful, with a slightly slower, delayed comprehension both valiantly showing savagery without sending their cave characters up. The influence of the travellers has a subtly progressive effect on the tribe. Tsar shows reasoning by interrogating her about the travellers' actions when they saved him. And yet the gulf between our understanding and theirs is that they think friend is Ian's name. They don't know what the word means. Their hands moved slowly and their faces were not fierce from her is a smart observation about how our expressions and our body language have changed as our environment and our relationship to it has evolved. The TARDIS is not the only one with a chameleon circuit. Tsar has the makings of a good leader, repeating Ian's hint that Cal is not stronger than the whole tribe to her, explaining that the whole tribe is stronger working together. Ian is teaching very progressive politics to the gums. He's waking them up. I must learn more things to remember, says Tsar. The leader would have things to remember, is another great line, illustrating the more progressive side of primitive thought patterns. In the script, Cal is lying flat on a rock above the tribesman who stands outside the cave. 
a rather optimistic stage direction, probably fairly quickly dismissed by designer Barry Newbury. And so instead, Jeremy Young's entrance is more on ground level. The biggest practical concern this week is the heavy use of fire in the studio. It really benefits the episodes, but will have been a huge pain to accommodate. And it occasionally plays havoc with the studio cameras, whiting out the picture where the flame's burning intensity is. The actors do well, though. Derek Newark gets admirably close with his face, and Jeremy Young touches it. You need gritty, doughty actors as your cave people. No, he is our leader. Ian defers the series lead to the Doctor in a big moment for the show, and for the character, as Ian otherwise pretty much fulfils the traditional hero's role, and he looks like one too. But no, he is our leader, he says. Doctor Who, take centre stage in your own show. Cal, of course, never makes it back out of the Cave of Skulls alive, because the baddie needs a comeuppance, which in this episode takes the form of a remarkably unpleasant and stark fight sequence, replete with bites and quite a disconcerting scream from Jeremy Young when Cal is trounced. Young was asked to keep his screams down a bit, though they are still brilliantly screechy and inhuman. And the way Zar drags his defeated enemy's corpse off unceremoniously by one leg at the climax is pleasantly animalistic. Now in the early drafts, the tribe become friendly once fire is made. Even, probably, the old mother. The doctor thinks of his empty stomach, Susan suggests a picnic, and Barbara has a better idea. A barbecue. The tribe and the travellers share a cooked meal, and probably share a joke and a grinning freeze frame. Ha ha ha! Sounds awful, doesn't it? Thank goodness for Doctor Who and its darkness and pessimism, eh? And instead, they grubbily run towards the TARDIS, pursued by the people who should be their friends. Everyone does have something to eat, though. Ordered from props is some fully practical meat. Fully practical, meaning edible. This comes in the form of cold lamb chops. Newark wipes the grease in his hair to add to the illusion of his muckiness, worried that the wigs for the cave people are too neat. Uh, slight disclaimer, he also eats practical meat in part two, so this anecdote may apply to that instalment. The skull Susan uses is made of fibreglass so that it can be impervious to fire. The ones not required to come into contact with flames are all vacuum formed and so would therefore be unsuitable for immolation. It is Susan who comes up with the clever idea of mounting the skulls on burning torches, and it is a fantastic image. Look carefully, though, at the skull on Susan's torch. At the end of the scene, the presumably hot liquid starts dripping down the shaft of the torch. In the script, a terrible wailing noise is heard from the cave, and the guard outside just runs from his post. In the transmitted version, however, her comes in to feed the travellers, sees the burning skulls on poles, and frustrates herself. In the earlier script, Ian was to throw his voice and pretend the skull was speaking in order to carry off further the illusion that those burning skulls are the travellers. As mentioned in The When, early drafts suggest a Frank Lloyd Wright building, as featured in Anthony Coburn's next story, then scheduled to be the show's second adventure, Doctor Who and the Robots. This is to be seen on the scanner at the end of the episode. This, however, is changed to a petrified jungle when Terry Nation's script set on the planet Scaro replaces Anthony Coburn's robotic one. So, 
So long, Frank Lloyd Wright. The Firemaker ends on a cliffhanger. In the script, the radiation meter isn't properly plugged in, and that's why it initially registers normal. Strictly speaking, at the end of the story, Tsar still doesn't know how to make fire. The travellers are told, we have fire now, which is perhaps the most ungrateful line ever said in the show, but it's a great display of blunt pragmatism that demonstrates how attitudes unencumbered by 20th century morality will be as dangerous as anything else the travellers encounter. But, nevertheless, the tribe of gum only have fire because Ian made it for them. So basically, someone from the tribe is going to have to keep the fire burning at all times. If anyone drops off on Firewatch, then they are toast. Well, except not. They won't be able to make toast. The Who Alethea Charlton Alethea Charlton, who plays her in An Unearthly Child, was born Alethea Blow Charlton on the 9th of August 1931 in Middlesbrough, Yorkshire, to John and Phyllis Charlton, who ran a post office. Her Christian name, Alethea, came from the Greek word for truth, and she was brought up in a strictly Victorian manner and educated at Ripon High School, where, thanks to adopting the establishment's ethos of self-discipline, she became a prefect and excelled at English and in the school plays, although she was always cast in the male roles. Her headmistress recognised her talent, though, and after a short spell as a teacher in Bingley, she was propelled straight into the Northern Theatre School in Bradford, where she was contemporaries with Billy Whitelaw, Robert Stevens and Bernard Hepton, and also trained at the Old Vic. She went to repertory in York, then a season at Morecambe, where she became a local favourite, and then Harrogate, where she was leading lady, winning excellent reviews in a variety of parts, with the stage describing her as an actress of undoubted skill and understanding. As Sheila Burling in An Inspector Calls, The Gardener in Spider's Web and Sergeant Fire in Dry Rot. She has always shown an awareness of character which marks her out for further notice. As Helen in A Taste of Honey, she was outstanding as the blousy drinking prostitute and made the character with its hint of forgotten mother love very real. One of her fellow actors at Harrogate was Michael Kilgariff, who says today of Alethea that mention of her name still brings a smile to my face, such was her charm and affability. She relocated to London in 1960 before heading to the USA, touring universities. Whilst there, the entire company became stranded due to poor producership and they were stuck, unpaid and destitute. She told a newspaper at the time that she hadn't eaten for two days. It was like an old-fashioned melodrama, she said. The company's plight was publicised on television and an old boyfriend sent her a plane ticket to LA and while the rest of the stranded company flew home, she went there to be a sort of nanny for his first child, all the while pounding on doors to get work in Hollywood. I have never been anywhere with so many beautiful bodies, she recalled later. I hadn't the physical equipment. Some stories never change, no matter how many times they are told. Eventually, though, she found work as a leading lady in Shaw's Misalliance at the Playbox Theatre at the Pasadena Playhouse. But one day, the police came knocking. She had the wrong type of work permit and was kicked out of the country. But she was yearning for home anyway. She came back with a newfound knowledge regarding self-promotion. It was America that opened my eyes, and I'll always be grateful for that. I learned how to sell myself, to say, look at me, 
It wasn't so much what I said as an attitude which spoke for me. I felt able to hold up my head with the best of them, she recalled. I'm not a conventional beauty. I'm not even the fashionable idea of an actress, but I can come up with the goods. In 1962, she worked on A Long Day's Journey Into Night at the Guildford Theatre, directed by Richard Martin, who was a key member of the developing Doctor Who production team a year later when An Unearthly Child was being cast. And just prior to Doctor Who, she was in the Sunday night play Plain Jane with Derek Newark and with June Barry, the actress wife of Doctor Who script editor David Whittaker. Immediately after working on this small matter of TV history that is the first ever Doctor Who story, she was back on stage at the New Theatre Bromley in Woman in a Dressing Gown by Ted Willis. She had a varied career, playing all sorts of parts, often against type. Playing baddie parts may not do my reputation any good, but it's good for my personality. It gives me the chance to get all the nastiness out of my system, she said. It makes me a friendly, uncomplicated person once I've finished the play. That catharsis wasn't part of the process when she was an amusing good fairy at the Theatre Royal York's 1967 Christmas panto Dick Whittington, though. And the following year, she had an illustrious gig at the Royal Court in John Hopkins' first stage play, This Story of Yours, a four-hander, which she starred and toured with Michael Bryant, Gordon Jackson and John Phillips. And so, by the end of the decade, she was definitely theatrical leading lady material, appearing at the Theatre Royal in York in Pirandello's When One Is Somebody, directed by the notoriously irascible Donald Bodley. Lower down the cast list was Pamela Salem, who recalls that... Donald Bodley was an irascible director. Stories of him are legion, particularly from the number of actors with whom he fell out or had a real set to. I had managed to avoid being fired, which he did frequently with the people around him, by keeping out of his way as much as possible. Alethea had been called in by Bodley to be the lead in the play. And he spoke about her and her talent and her imminent arrival in glowing terms. He also caught us sitting in the sun during a miraculous heatwave and screamed at us that we would be fired if we sunned ourselves, as we were playing nuns. The fact that only our faces showed out of our habits and they could be turned whatever shade we wanted with makeup was an observation none of us dared make in reply. We were quite upset we couldn't take advantage of the decent weather, and then Alethea arrived. She had absolutely no fear of Donald or anyone else, and flying directly in the face of his order, she flung several of her clothes off whenever she had time to sit in the sun, and we, of course, followed suit and flung them off too, sitting close within her aura. Her mischievous charm and strong character worked, and though Donald glared at us, bursting with fury, he couldn't say anything to the star he had been promoting. She was great fun, and thanks to her, we enjoyed our summer at the Theatre Royal. Charlton was not only impressing members of her own profession. One contemporary interviewer described her as being fraught with dangerous possibilities, like explosive at the end of a long, burning fuse, who was miles away from the dour parts she often played, especially the one that she was most famous for, Aunt Ethel in Sam. Aunt Ethel was probably the part for which she became the most associated, despite a TV career that had started in 1958 and included another appearance in Doctor Who as Edith in The Time Meddler in 1965. And she also appeared in the BBC's production of The Woman in White in 1966 and guested in many favourite programmes, such as Doomwatch, opposite Patrick Troughton, no less, in In the Dark, Out of the Unknown in 
This Body is Mine with John Carson and Jack Headley, The Lotus Eaters and Crown Court. Those merely scratch the surface, but the internet is your friend if you just want a list. Auntie Ethel Barraclough, though, a key character in the life story, Child to Man, of Sam's eponymous hero, required the actress to show her range by ageing as the series progressed, undergoing heavy makeup and carrying out proper character acting work. It was a fondly received series and made Charlton a household face and viewer favourite. That super actress Alethea Charlton, as the Daily Mirror called her in 1973. But though Sam was a great success and she showed her versatility as Ethel, all was not well. Throughout the filming of the new series of Sam, she was laid low with hepatitis, but ignored doctors' orders to enter hospital for a rest. Instead, reported the Daily Mirror, she staggered through rehearsals making regular trips to London to visit an acupuncturist. For the part as Aunt Ethel, attractive, cheerful-looking Lethia had to look ill, old and miserable. Thanks to her illness, she looked just that. But that was only the beginning. She died at the Royal Marsden Hospital with a malignant melanoma on the 6th of May 1976 and was cremated on the 13th at a service at St Michael's Church, Elmbank Gardens, not far from her flat at number three, one of three homes she had, with properties in Manchester and Rosedale, Pickering, Yorkshire, a cottage attached to the village shop. Her last two performances, guesting in episodes of Leslie Crowther series Big Boy Now and daytime drama The Cedar Tree, were aired posthumously. She never married. I think it's a bit daunting for men to approach me, she said. Men like a pliable lady. I can be pliable, but no one has bothered to find out. A shame for the men, really, because she confessed that... I believe it is a woman's duty to serve a man. I really do. I think that is what a woman's for. Maybe it's because of my upbringing and because I don't belong in the 20th century. But as it was... Acting for me is a form of marriage. I give everything I have to it. I would have liked to shared my own with someone else, but that's life. It's meant to be. I believe it's a duty to make the most of every single day you've got and live each day richly and fully, and to hell with tomorrow. Alethea Charlton died aged just 44. Anthony Coburn Anthony Coburn, the writer of the first Doctor Who story, doesn't get talked about that much. He was basically off the show pretty quickly. No one on the team was especially wild about the caveman story, and his second set of scripts, The Masters of Luxor, or Doctor Who and the Robots, we'll look at that some other time, were developed but rejected by the team and off he went, never to trouble Doctor Who again. But it was apparently Coburn who suggested that the TARDIS be a police box, and he introduced the fact that Susan was the Doctor's granddaughter to head off any suggestions of impropriety between the old man and young woman hanging about in a junkyard. James Anthony Coburn was born on the 10th of December 1927 in Melbourne, Australia. His mother's family were from Irish stock. His father's side originated in Scotland. Coburn, the oldest of three boys and known to everyone as Tony, did not do especially well at school, 
but he worked as a journalist for the Argus in Melbourne and harboured a certain desire to act. In 1951, UK-based Australian playwright Niall Brennan wrote a part for his fellow countryman Coburn in his play Peterson's Hut, to be performed at the Interval Club, and it was reported that Coburn had travelled 12,000 miles to play the part. Three performances, no pay. Still, he stuck around the Interval Club, playing a handsome, supercilious the stage, Prince Charming, in the mock pantomime A Fig for Cinderella later that year. One of Coburn's safety nets in the country he had settled in was his staunch Catholicism. He joined the Catholic Evidence Guild at Westminster Cathedral, where he met his future wife, Joan. He could often be found at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, preaching about his faith, and turned out to be quite an effective public speaker. His penchant for declamatory and dramatic pronouncements was noted by his family as a trademark. He and Joan married in 1953, and with money tight, Tony worked as variously a meat delivery driver, a seller of kitchen implements, and a furniture delivery man. Peterson's hut had brought him into the orbit of fellow actor Bernard Hepton, who ended up directing the UK premiere of Coburn's play The Bastard Country, which actually toured his home country first under the title Fire in the Wind. It was a finalist in the play competition run by the Observer newspaper in 1957, and Hepton's production was at the Birmingham Rep in 1960. About a bullying Australian patriarch pursued by a gentle Greek interloper intent on revenge, the Australian John Willie had raped and murdered his wife in the war. It was an intense piece, but well-reviewed. Brian Blessed and John Maxim, Frankenstein in the chase, fact fans, were the leads. Bold, dramatic and highly charged with emotion. According to one critic, it was wildly applauded by audiences. Coburn also wrote a short story, The Tale of the Fourth Stranger, about a man searching for a sea monster, for the US publication The Saturday Evening Post, which was selected as one of the best of the year and so presented in book form alongside works by other successful Evening Post writers that year, illustrious names like Nicholas Montserrat, Geoffrey Household and Jack Finney. But even so, Coburn and his ever-growing family were barely scraping by, and he was thinking of trying to save up enough to move back to Australia until he had one final push at catching the BBC's eye, and it was successful. The corporation took him on in late 1960 as a staff writer, with a regular weekly wage. Good fortune was infectious, and at around this time he also had his first TV script accepted for... Well, regular listeners to this podcast shouldn't be surprised that Knight Errant Limited rears its head here. He also sold the film rights to the bastard country, and although he got some money for this, nothing solid film-wise came out of it. The BBC credits began to mount up, though. On They Made History, he was credited as A.J. Coburn, and he also completed an adaptation of a thriller by Pamela Fry called The Watching Cat, which had starred Jacqueline Hill, and a play called She's a Free Country. Torn between Britain and Australia, he knew he could earn far more money in London and felt it impossible to earn a living as a writer in his home country. But his father was ill at home, and he was desperate to get his parents over to the UK if he himself couldn't get back to Australia. But it never happened. It turned out that when he left Australia, that that would prove to be the last time he saw his father, who died in May 1963. Tony couldn't afford to fly back for the wake, so when he started writing Doctor Who the following month, he was a traveller, 
cut off from his home and family, lost and unable to return. In July, whilst he was writing for Doctor Who, Sidney Newman's structural changes of the BBC came into place, including the dismantling of the script unit, which meant that Coburn lost his regular wage and was re-employed by Doctor Who as a freelancer, so he asked for his writing fee to be broken up into weekly instalments so that his income would be structured more in the manner that he was used to it coming in. They did this, but the shuffling about resulted in an overpayment of £133, which the corporation asked him to pay back. Television-wise, he had an episode of Dr Finlay's Casebook screened in September 1963, and an episode of Maigret broadcast whilst an unearthly child was running. But his second attempt for Doctor Who, first called Doctor Who and the Robots and then the Masters of Luxor, was shuffled around the production order and eventually abandoned. Its somewhat crowbarred musings on religion versus science didn't help it, and the Doctor Who team remained unconvinced by it, which signalled Coburn's departure from the show, never to return. Coburn had, whilst an unearthly child was being broadcast, a letter printed in the Catholic Herald defending the BBC from criticisms about the morality of its shows. A month or so later, clearly stung by his enforced exit from Doctor Who, his opinion had changed somewhat and he wrote again, and the focus of his ire was on continuing long-running series and serials. It is a deliberate policy amongst all those who sanction and produce these long-running series that these continuing characters should not be identified with any political party or religious sect or denomination. These fictional but no less real while they last friends of the family, who for better or worse serve as the folk heroes of a modern age, believe nothing but the rules of the job they do. The real evil of television, in popular drama, amounts to the almost total dismissal of religion as an irrelevant extra. And so he left Doctor Who behind, although his rift with the production team must not have been too pronounced, as when Verity Lambert and Warris Hussain launched the soap opera The Newcomers in 1965, the second script, and he would write plenty more for the show, was by Tony Coburn. He had also dramatised a version of The Children of the New Forest in 1964, and that year he did actually get to do a little acting, appearing in a small role in the TV adaptation of successful Australia set play Summer of the Seventeenth Doll, which was directed by Mary Ridge, who later helmed Terminus for Doctor Who. This Australian play, featuring genuine articles like Madge Ryan and Galaxy 4's Lynn Ashley, would have benefited from Coburn's authentic accent if he'd actually had any lines. He also served as a reporter on the documentary series Viewpoint, making films about such subjects close to his heart and experience as the plight of Aboriginal people in Australia and a hospital which cared for disabled children. Coburn's own daughter was disabled. He began producing in 1967, providing security once again, and in 1970 he oversaw the drama Playhouse Strand, which launched The Regiment, The Befrienders and The Aneedin Line, all of which went to series, with Coburn choosing to take on The Regiment as his own project. He established a solid reputation for himself as a safe pair of hands and a rescuer of stricken shows, by helming programmes such as Vendetta, The Borderers, the Terry Nation one-off The Incredible Robert Baldick, which if you haven't seen, you must. And he also produced and co-created the TV series Warship, which has Lieutenant Carstairs and Valgard in it. Warship remained a proud achievement and a successful show, but it was not without a physical cost to the man in charge. And Tony suffered a heart attack in 1973, 
while finishing work on the first series and had to take some time off his television duties. The family, which comprised of seven children, told you he took the Catholic thing seriously, were resident now in Hearn Bay, and so he had a period of convalescence at home, sometimes taking the boat out and enjoying the slower pace of life. It was during this time that the traveller finally got to go home. Australia 1975 was the place and time of broadcast of the series of Ben Hall, which had been conceived by Coburn in collaboration with ABC, although he didn't end up working on the finished episodes. Whilst serving as producer of the second series of the popular show Poldark, which, because of his reputation as a troubleshooter, he had been drafted into to placate the unhappy writer of the source material, Coburn suffered another heart attack. He was admitted to hospital on April the 17th, 1977, and died there 10 days later, on the 28th of April, aged just 49. He had suffered from a heart complaint for many years. At the time, Sean Sutton, the head of BBC's drama group, said that despite his health concerns, he chose to go on working and we all hoped that by pacing himself carefully, he would continue to produce for many years to come. He was a producer, director and writer of high talent and a man of great courage. He will be greatly missed by everyone in television drama. Four months earlier, Coburn recalled that when writing Doctor Who, the character was supposed to have a screen lifetime of just six weeks. It was difficult to take seriously some sort of nut who spanned the generations and the centuries by whizzing around in a police box. Coburn's science fiction novel Gargantua, about an asteroid on collision course with Earth, published by Futura, came out posthumously in November 1977. References Before I go, I need to acknowledge a debt to those doughty and diligent researchers whose work I have picked over and collated and cross-referenced to come up with much of the above. Doctor Who, The Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth, contains so much that is useful for timelines and cross-reference and is the embodiment of fastidious research and clear presentation. Much of the material therein is based on Andrew Pixley's rigorously wrought archives features from back in the day and also features the work of Richard Atkinson, Johnny Morris and Alistair McGowan. How Stammers and Walker, with their definitive books on the 60s, 70s and 80s, and each doctor in their handbooks, deserve much praise for shaping our basic understanding of the developmental story of the entire show behind the scenes. And Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years is a vital and valuable record of this period in the show's history in both words and glorious pictures. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's complete history of time travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference too. I walk in the shadows of giants, who probably spent their weekends as children photocopying Radio Timeses in their local library. I would also like to acknowledge the production notes on the BBC DVD of this story and the denizens of the Brit Movie Forum, who are very good at unearthing actor facts and biographical info. Thanks too to Michael Kilgariff and Pamela Salem for their memories of Alethea Charlton, and to Graham Kibble-White for some instructive chat and diligent research which helped to shape my understanding of Anthony Coburn. And that's nearly it for now. There is so much to recommend this story, so often overlooked because of the opening instalment that precedes it and the science fiction serial which follows. 
But the cavemen are as alien as any Dalek, and the travellers don't get waved off by a cheerful bunch of tamed Neanderthals telling them that they are the stuff of legend. They literally have to flee the adventure, which then ends on a cliffhanger. This series is essentially throwing its leads from the fire into the world of frying pans, which means tension and danger, which never lets up, with the thread connecting the schoolteachers to their coveted 20th century, an ever fraying one. There's no easy morality here, and no comfortable relationships. The very best the travellers can do is to survive. And surviving the fire at all costs, well, that's not as risk-free as it sounds, as they will soon discover in their next adventure. Oh, and in our tribe, the firemaker is the least important man. Doctor Who, The Firemaker, also featured Howard Lang as Horg and Alethea Charlton as her, and the fighter ranger was Derek Ware. The title music was by Ron Grainer with the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, the incidental music by Norman Kay. The story editor was David Whittaker, the designer Barry Newbury, and the associate producer was Mervyn Pinfield. The Firemaker was watched by 6.4 million people, and the audience appreciation was 55. Thank you for listening to Too Much Information, The Firemaker, which was written and presented by me, Toby Haydock. Other voices were provided by Suze Kempner and Cheryl Houston. Technical assistance is from Russell Parker, and the series consultant is Richard Bignall. Thanks go to Richard Bignall, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, Tony Clark, Graham Kibble-White, Michael Kilgariff, Pamela Salem, the late Derek Ware, and Jeremy Young. Coming next, there's an alien jungle, and it is petrified. But it isn't the only one, as the travellers are forced to search an alien city because someone, um, well, actually our hero, Doctor Who, has sabotaged the ship in order to satisfy his curiosity. It's a good job they haven't brought a cat with them, but the travellers embark upon the show's second opening instalment, and if you thought that their days of having to do the whole thing all over again were over, you'd, uh, you'd be wrong. That's next time on Doctor Who Too Much Information. Next episode, The Dead Planet, or you'd be a sucker not to fall for this one. There's a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, called Far Too Much Information that is for now exclusive to patrons, as it's ultra-geeky and it needn't be considered essential information. And, come on, I have to hold something back at first as I get used to this patron broadcast podcast self-funding, self-producing malarkey. And this stuff does take quite a lot of time to put together, you know. Please consider supporting these broadcasts by signing up as a subscriber on patreon.com 
forward slash Toby Haydock. You will get advanced releases, extra exclusive material, and if you play your cards right, a badge. You are now charged as soon as you sign up to stop people signing up at the beginning of the month and then cancelling before they pay. I know, some people are very clever, aren't they? So that's a new system, so beware. But you can also sign up for a year and get a 10% discount if you so desire. Those who have already subscribed and are reaping the benefits of the Patreon system include Barry Platt, Darren Mackay, Joe Llewellyn, Ian Key, Savon Galichon, Chris Dunford-Kelk, John Deere, Rob Dawson, Paul Cook, Jenny at Blue Box 99, Richard Straw, Stephen Moffat, not that one, Rob Leonard, Ruben Herfindahl, Andrew Lutke Atkins, Peter Adamson, Will Brooks, Rick Byatt, Paul Carrington, Andy Case, John Curley, Mark Dakin, Ian Gillespie, James Gould, Lisa C. Greco, Dave Hoskin, Jessica Jones, Andrew Jordan, Guy Lambert, James Lark, and David Matthewman. Thanks to them, and to everybody else, and those who have donated doing the one-off method at ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock. That way you can show your support and appreciation, but not commit yourself to the monthly thing. And that's totally understandable. I have a website, www.tobyhaydock.com, and a YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe to that. And if you aren't able to offer financial support, and I totally understand that, times are tough, you're welcome as listeners. I would appreciate it, though, and this is totally free, if you could rate these podcasts five stars wherever possible and review them at every single podcast outlet known to humankind. That costs you nothing, and it really helps me to get the word about these out there. And there is live comedy at Excess Malarkey, which is twitch.tv forward slash Excess Malarkey every Tuesday night at 8pm GMT. It's a live show with four special guests, all glued together by me yelling about stuff. But it's an award-winning comedy club that's been going 24 years, and it's what I do when I'm not talking about Doctor Who in ridiculous detail. So do come along to that if you can. It's totally free, although donations are accepted. Of course they are. Thank <laughs> you.